Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. You know, as a, as a journalist, we always get people to tell us their deepest, darkest secrets, right? We always push them to the edge of their story. And by wanting to share my story, I'm worried that I'm not going to do it justice. But it's not just my story. It's the story of thousands of other children who have gone through a very similar experience to me who may not have the opportunity or the platform to share share their experiences. And having having a lot of um, friends who were scooped, I want to be able to um, be a voice for those who who don't have this opportunity. Scooped. That's shorthand for the people who were part of the 60s scoop. When Canadian authorities separated indigenous children from their parents and cultures and placed them in primarily white homes. Kim, she was one of those kids. My name is Kim Wheeler. That is my married name. Before that, I had another married name, which was Zervogel, and a lot of people knew me as Kim Zervogel throughout my career. But my adopted name was Kim Bell, and my birth name was Ruby Linda Briere. That's a lot of names. And when you have that many names and you go through your life with all those names, you kind of question who you really are. Kim spent decades trying to find an answer to that question. And for her, it keeps coming back to the 60s scoop. I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. For the 60s scoop survivors, there wasn't a single dedicated commission like there was for the residential school survivors. Instead, those kids, they're adults now, were part of a multi-million dollar class action lawsuit that the federal government settled in 2017. To be part of that settlement, people were invited to apply. So the deadline to fill out the form is August 30th of 2019. It is now August 29th at 8.05 p.m. And I'm about to open my browser on my computer for the first time. And look at these forms. As she got ready to apply, Kim, the eternal journalist, decided to document the whole thing. This impossible process of trying to explain what happened to her in a few paragraphs and ticked boxes all with the hope that someone in a faraway office will read her application and see her. Kim's going to take it from here. She'll start at the beginning. I was 13 days old 
when I was placed into my adopted family. They were foster parents, and I was their 51st foster child. I have three sisters on my adopted family side and a brother. Um, my brother is also adopted, but he is not my blood brother, but he is also indigenous. He was actually the one to say that he wanted to adopt me because he wanted another baby in the family who looked like him. I guess I didn't start feeling like I was adopted until probably into my early teens when um, my mother said something. Oh, my God. She said something at a Christmas morning. I was about, I think I was about 15 years old. And she said, I want a picture of my daughters in front of the tree. And my three white sisters got up to sit in front of the tree. I went to make a move. And she looked at me and said, no, no, no. I just want Barb, Arlene, and Kathy. That was the first time I ever felt like I didn't really belong in this family. When I was in journalism school, I hadn't had any interactions with Indigenous people really up until that point. So if I'm in journalism school, that was 93, so I was 24 years old. I was 24 years old before I started having meaningful contact with Indigenous people. Across the hall from the journalism program was another program called the Native Communications Program. The people who were going through that program, they saw me in the hall and would talk to me, would say hi, and all these First Nation students, you know, I could see them. They were so proud. You know, I could hear drumming from their classroom. I could smell their smudge. I had no idea about any of that. I remember one time these two boys, they sat me down and, and we, you know, we were talking and they go, oh, do you ever go to a round dance? Have you ever been to a powwow? Have you ever done this? And I'm like, no, no, no. And they're like, well, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm from Winnipeg. They're like, no, where's your family from? What they meant was, where was my First Nation? Well, I of course I didn't know, right? So then I told them that I was adopted out. But I remember getting really emotional with them and saying, you know, like, I just, I don't know any of this. So I'm sitting in my treehouse office because it's our sunroom on the second floor of our house, mine and my husband's. So we have windows surrounding three sides of it. We can see um, all the trees and we can see the, the rooftops of our neighbors' houses and we can see the back lane. And it's, you know, it's kind of like when you were a child and you had a tree house and you sat up in your tree house and you, you spied on everybody going by. And, and that's how I feel when I, when I sit up here in this office. And so I find it very inspirational to 
sit up in in our treehouse office and um, and watch what's going on around me. But tonight, I have to fill out my 60 scoop forms. I probably started identifying with that term about 10 to 15 years ago. And I realized, oh my God, like I was part of the 60s scoop because I was adopted into a white family. I lost my language. I lost my culture. And my adoptive parents bought into the government line of killing the Indian in the child. The 60s scoop was a time when the government, and you know, of course they still do this, but the government took away Indigenous children, Métis, First Nations, Inuit children, placed them in non-Indigenous foster homes, i.e. white foster homes, and we were basically stripped of our culture and family ties and anything that gave us our identity. And we, as 60 Scoop babies, now get to share our trauma and get a settlement. So quite a few years ago, one of my friends who is also adopted, uh, you know, called me up and said that there is a group of people from the 60 Scoop who are putting together, they're getting together and they're talking about uh, launching a class action lawsuit. And they invited me to come along to the meetings and, and uh, man, I never went. And I just thought, I, like, I don't know how this would, you know, how this would affect me. And, and I felt like I just, I felt like I just didn't have any expertise or anything to contribute to what, you know, what they were trying to do. So I just kind of watched everything develop from afar. And when it, you know, it came to applying, I thought, what if I'm not eligible? And I dreaded it. I like, I don't, you know, I don't want to go and relive all the stuff that I relive in my head all the time anyways. I had a I had a, I had a really difficult difficult time wanting to write it down. So um, I'm going to open my browser and go through these questions. And I'm going to share this experience with you because I feel it's important. I feel it's important that. Canadians get an understanding of what this journey has been like for me. And just to shed some understanding on this experience. So, so let's get started. Let's fill out this form. Let's open this browser. In my early 20s, when I got pregnant with my first child, was when I decided that I wanted to find out who my birth family was. And 
At first, I just wanted non-identifying information, which is basically medical history. And so I called up the post-adoption registry, and I asked them for the application form. And so the guy took down my information, and about half an hour later, my phone rang, and it was the uh, the post-adoption registry. And they said, you're going to want to fill these forms out. And I went, what do you mean? He said, I, ca- I can't tell you more than that, and I'm already saying too much, but you want to fill these forms out. And in that moment, I knew somebody had registered to find me. So I filled my forms out immediately, and I sent them in, and like things just went crazy. And two weeks later, I was meeting my siblings. And, you know, we exchanged our stories, the story that I had been told by my adopted mother, and the story that the sisters knew. My adopted mother told me the day she remembers getting me. And she told the story that there was this beautiful Indian woman who was really well-dressed with white boots who handed her baby over to me. And and she said, please take care of her and please love her. And of course, my adopted mother said, yes, we'll take very good care of her. And and then she, she walked out with me in her arms. Um, the birth siblings tell that story a little bit different. So after I told them that story, they went, no, 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 your mother never dressed like that. She didn't have those clothes. That wasn't her. You know, that, that wasn't the reality. The reality of the story was that my birth mother got pregnant with me while her husband was in jail. And he said when he got out, that baby better not be there. So she gave me up for adoption. And now it's on to your personal story, which is optional. Would you like to share your story? Sharing your story can help us evaluate your claim if records cannot be located. We will not share this information with anyone without your permission. This next part is also optional. Would you like the Healing Foundation to document your story? If you agree to share your story, you can give permission for the Healing Foundation to archive it with the stories of other 60 Scoop survivors. This would mean that your story would be publicly available today and for future generations. My birth sisters told me basically right off the hop, probably within the first 10 minutes of meeting them, that our mother was not alive anymore. That she had, I guess there's a question of whether she overdosed or whether she took her own life on, I believe it was New Year's Eve of 1989. Um, Which was the same New Year's Eve that I finally told someone for the first time in my life that 
that I had been sexually abused by my adopted father. So while I was going through a really painful night, so were my birth sisters. They were going through a painful night because they had just lost their mother. When they told me, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't sad. I was just kind of numb. Like, okay, well, now I don't get to meet the woman who gave me birth. <laughs> the reunion with the birth family what did not go exactly well. It was okay for a bit. Um, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in that family. Even though there were some good experiences, there was also a lot of negative experiences. And eventually I had to stop talking to the birth siblings. AC here. Coming up, the deadline creeps closer, and Kim faces down a blank entry form. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. I was the 51st foster child to be placed with this family and the last one. This family thought they were doing a favor to me by adopting me. I always knew I was different. In my family photo album, there was a card that said I wasn't expected, I was selected. For as long as I can remember, my adopted family would tell strangers I was adopted. They would tell them on buses, in school meetings, in shopping malls, at parks, you name it. I guess they did this because I was brown and they were white and they felt a need, and they felt a need to explain that fact. But by doing so, it was so incredibly damaging because then I never quite felt accepted by this family. My adoptive parents made me feel ashamed to be First Nations. Back then we called it Indian. They would drive both my adopted brother, Brian, and I down to Logan and Maine in Winnipeg, a well-known strip of bars that Indigenous people frequented. They would point out drunks and tell us if we didn't pull up our socks and work hard, we would end up just like those Indians down on Main Street. They reinforced this idea that they were bad people by making us lock our doors and roll up our windows. Everything they said about First Nations people was always negative. I remember in kindergarten I had a red dress and it was beautiful. I don't remember where I got it or who gave it to me, but my mother refused to let me wear it. She said that Indians who wanted to be boastful and thought highly of themselves were red. I never wore that dress to school. All my life, my mother kept my hair short and choppy. If my hair got down to my collar, she would nag me and say mean things to me like, you look so sloppy, long hair doesn't suit you, you don't look clean. 
until I couldn't stand it anymore and I would go get it cut short again. The first thing I did when I moved out of my parents' house was grow my hair long. Many things happened in this family at the hands of the mother and father, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, and not just once or twice, but for years. And they did everything they could to make sure we were worn down, submissive and ashamed. Years later, when my brother and I were in our early 30s, we were finally able to talk to one another about growing up in this family. I confessed to him that it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I was able to say the word Indian without cringing. We didn't know our language. We didn't know about smudging. We had never been to a powwow or a round dance. We didn't own anything cultural whatsoever. So we didn't fit in with this white family and we didn't fit in with the First Nations world either until we changed that for ourselves. I found my way back through journalism. And I know a lot of people who uh, were adopted out went into journalism or filmmaking or some other form of storytelling. And I don't know if it's that way for them, but for me, journalism gave me a safe space to ask questions about about the culture that I may not have asked otherwise. To go into those spaces, to, you know, be a part of a feast, be, you know, go to a powwow, go to festivals and conferences and other places where there are, you know, pockets of culture and more information about the history of our people in this country and and the past and the future of our, our people in this country. I could go there as an observer and take it all in and learn about it. And so that, you know, that really helped me connect back to culture. I credit my career with saving that part of me. I'm a journalist that has covered Indigenous stories since 1993. And if I had taken a different career path, I don't know if I ever would have found my way back. It has been a painful journey, one that could have been avoided if the government had done the right thing in the first place. And now... I'm expected to sum up a lifetime of pain in a handful of paragraphs. The main idea behind the 60 Scoop settlement is to talk about loss of culture. So I'm ending my story with this. I could have spent the last year writing about my loss of culture and all the things that I missed out on, but time is tight and I've cried enough. Once I I pushed send on the application... I worried that, you know, whoever was on the other side receiving my application was felt this was a legitimate adoption, that my birth mother gave me up for adoption and I wasn't going to be part of the 60 scoop. But I knew that I was. I knew that I was. <laughs> I mean, if I wasn't, I wouldn't have been ashamed. I wouldn't have, you know, I would 
wouldn't have lost my culture. I would be able to speak my language. I would know my history. Um, so I worried that that they that they wouldn't um, wouldn't include me in that group. And again, you know, it goes back to the, you know, where do I belong? Because if I wasn't part of the 60s scoop, then, you know, I didn't belong there either. a documentary, a radio doc, okay. on my 60 Scoop thing. Nice. And I want to include you. All right. I love you. You guys are the best. <laughs> uh, so tell me what your name is. My name is David Clayton Herman. And where are you from? I am originally from Atikameg Whitefish Lake, Alberta, born in Edmonton. And so earlier today we were talking about our settlement and how I went to last day to apply. And when did you apply for yours? Well, because I'm like really, really white now, I applied right away. And so you got your letter, right? I got my letter of confirmation. What happened when, like, when you got it? What did you think? It was like life changing. It's like, oh my God, it feels like I have good credit and I got a bank loan. No, but actually, be ser- <laughs> you want me to be serious. Yeah. I'm joking. Okay. Well, I was happy. I want to invest it in myself, do something really positive that I would have done in the past. I mean, I feel like all the, for myself, the six scoop survivors wasted a lot of time looking for their identity. It's like a little bit of a compensation for that time loss, which wasn't my fault that I was taken away from my culture to, well, I went out and sought my culture and I'm glad I did. Like. That was something that could have been taught from day one, but we were denied. So in that way, I, I feel like the, the salmon is justified. And yeah, and I shared with you earlier that um, that I hadn't received my letter yet, oh, yeah. and I was a little worried. I, I was a little. Coming. I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, <gasps> it came today. Isn't that the universe is weird? <laughs> yeah. And I so figured, weird. But, I figured, uh, but let, let me tell you. So I got home and I yes, checked okay. through the through the mail and I was uh, like, "Collectiva." Nice. Man, who do I owe money to? That's <laughs> the company. The that, company. That's the company that's representing us. It's, yeah. So I opened it and it says, "Dear sixty scoop applicant." We are pleased to confirm that your individual payment application has been re- form has been reviewed and you have been confirmed to be eligible to be an eligible class member. And I've been approved for an individual payment. The adoptees are going to get anywhere between $25,000 and $50,000. Um, depending on how many people apply, depending on how many people are eligible, 
And nobody knows what that amount is going to be yet. And for a lot of us, it's really, you know, it's really not about the money. Like, yes, of course, we can all, everybody can use an extra $25,000, right? Um, but I call it blood money. It's blood money. You know? I'm getting paid for basically the loss of my childhood. At the end of January, I got invited to New Orleans, um, the indigenous word for New Orleans being Balbantia, for the International Indigenous Music Summit. And we had to go around the room and introduce ourselves. And, you know, again, as it's, you know, people are standing up and they're speaking in their language and, you know, they clearly have a strong connection to who they are where they were raised, who their families are, you know, what their lineage is. <laughs> and and it's a big circle. Like, it took eight hours to go around the circle. And as it's coming to me, I'm like, what am I going to say? How am I going to introduce myself? And so finally I stood up and I said, um, my name is Kim Wheeler. My maiden name is Belle. I was born Ruby Linda Briere, but I'm actually a Bolio. I was part of the 60s scoop. And uh, towed the government line to kill the Indian in the child. Clearly they failed. And there was this huge applause. Yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> Kim Wheeler. That doc was produced by Kim with me, AC Rowe. Special thanks to Kim Crawford from Music is the Medicine in London, Ontario, for her recording from the International Indigenous Music Summit, the one you just heard at the end. Some updates. While Kim stepped away from her birth family for a decade, two of her siblings have since reached out to her, and Kim says they are waiting patiently for her to be ready to try again. As we send this story to air, Kim has received her first settlement check. She says that she doesn't really know how to feel about it. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, and me. Our digital producers are Althea Manassin and Tahiat Mahboub. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.